None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Allegheny County Council Person Bethany Hallam. In 2019, Bethany defeated a 20-year incumbent on a campaign she ran as an openly formerly incarcerated person in recovery from opioid use disorder. So if you just want to give a little bio of um, how you got to where you are today, which is council person at large, they're not calling you at large because you escaped from prison, right? <laughs> if only, right? I should have had drums uh, for that. So I am the Allegheny County Council member at large. So that means I represent all 1.2 million people of Allegheny County on our Allegheny County Council. I was elected in 2019 as one of the first formerly incarcerated people to be elected in the entire nation. And I beat a 20-year incumbent. And so, you know, my, my path to getting here wasn't your typical getting involved in politics story, right? I I grew up in the North Hills of Pittsburgh with my parents and two younger siblings, and I was really involved in sports. And lacrosse specifically was my favorite. And my junior year in high school, I tore my ACL. And I didn't really realize at the time what kind of impact it was going to have on my life. I knew it sucked. I was hurt. I was missing my junior year season when all the college scouts were supposed to be watching. Uh, but outside of that, I didn't really think much into it. You know, I got prescribed uh, painkillers at the time of injury, went to the hospital, uh, went to uh, an orthopedic doctor, got scheduled for surgery, got surgery, did physical therapy, all the typical parts of uh, of an injury and injury recovery, and was prescribed painkillers throughout them. And, you know, my mom kept them and gave them to me as needed for pain whenever I'd ask. And we thought we were doing all the right things. And then just as I was getting cleared to go back to sports again, I was in gym class and I was playing handball and I tore my ACL again, the other one this time. And I knew instantly what happened because I had just gotten over the entire recovery for it. So pain pain pills again, uh, surgery again, physical therapy again, and altogether I was prescribed opioids for about 18 months And then one day I went in for a follow-up orthopedic doctor appointment and they said, all right, you know, that was your last refill and you're good to go. And over the next few days, I just felt like I was getting sick, you know, like, like I had the flu or something. And I was telling a friend and they were like, oh no, you're not sick. You're going through withdrawal from opioids. Here, take this pill. And he handed me a pill. I took it. And that was when, you know, my, my path through addiction really started. And over the next 10 years, I was introduced to heroin. I was in and out of jails and rehabs. I lost my driver's license for 10 years. I ruined relationships with people who had been lifelong friends and my family members. And I I really had just given up and didn't really think my life was ever going to amount to more than that. You know, I was stealing from people I loved. I was lying to everyone. I just... I wasn't myself 
And and I knew that, but I also didn't really care at the time to do much about that. And so then, um, you know, I, I was sent to jail on August 26th of 2016 for what ended up being my last time ever sent to jail. I went there on a probation violation for failing a drug test and testing positive for opioids while I was on probation. And I sat there for months. And I don't know what it was about that time in jail. Maybe it was that it was the longest time I'd ever been there. Maybe it was that I was sitting on a probation detainer and knew that I couldn't get bailed out. No one could come and save me. I was just kind of waiting on the judge. Uh, But when I got out, I decided I was going to live a different life. And so I got really involved in my community and in candidates who were running for office that really spoke to me and that I believed in. And then in 2019, those same people who I'd been working with, you know, over the past two years were like, I think you should run for office. And I laughed because I didn't think that somebody with my background could ever get elected. But I told them, you know, after much convincing, I would do it, but that I was going to do it on my own terms. I was going to tell my whole story. And then I was forever going to be a resource to other people who are using drugs, people who are in recovery, and just be a voice for everybody in the community. And so that's where I am today, finishing up my first four-year term as the county council member at large. That's awesome. So you went to prison and you had to quit cold turkey. Now, some people say that that's why drugs should be illegal, because if uh, sometimes prison's the only thing that saves people who have drug addictions, and you experience that, but what do you think about that? Uh, Yeah, I think that's nonsense, right? I'm lucky that I survived a cold turkey detox on the floor of the county jail. I I am able to be successful today in spite of my incarceration, not because of it. And I'm lucky that I had really great support systems who were there for me when I got out of jail. You know, a lot of people don't have those native supports, don't have the resources and opportunities to be successful when they're released from incarceration, do have access to health insurance to get the treatment that they need and to go on their recovery journey. And, you know, I've seen too many people die, whether it was detoxing in jail, whether it was leaving jail and uh, going back to using drugs after they get home because they they weren't taught any other way to 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 live life to to be successful. And so, you know, I hate that narrative that let's throw people in jail because that's what worked because it didn't work for me. If if throwing somebody was suffering from drug addiction in jail worked, I would have entered recovery years ago. Uh, you know, the first time I went to jail. And instead, it was really just a a perfect storm of support and being motivated by what was going on in the world in that time, right? I I was incarcerated during the 2016 presidential election, right? And Mm. for a a lot of people, regardless of what side you are on of that election, but that was really an awakening for a lot of people. And I was awakened to the fact that I wasn't doing anything to change my community because I was too busy getting high and and stealing and cheating and lying to actually get involved and do what I needed to do to be an advocate. And so I I really dislike that narrative that people push because if that was the case, we wouldn't see such a high rate of overdose of people who are released from incarceration. We we wouldn't see such a high rates of recidivism from people leaving the jail or the prison and, and ending up 
in an interaction with law enforcement again and back in jail or prison. So incarceration doesn't work for rehabilitating people. They call it corrections, but very few behaviors are corrected. Very few skills are taught. And that's a lot of the work that I'm trying to do on county council is make it so that while we have jails and prisons that we're actually using them to rehabilitate, to help people so that they don't feel the need to get involved in the legal system after they leave. Do you think it was just the drugs themselves that was the source of it, like the dependency? You said you started to use them illegally to avoid withdrawal. Do you think there was another factor that caused like full-blown addiction or was just maybe like your age and and just not being able to deal with it because some people are completely functional we see it with kratom and even with opioids um, when they take as long as it's safe and it's prescription and they might have chronic pain and and stuff and and they have a dependency like they would have withdrawal if they don't take it but they're completely functional and and they can manage it and they're not they don't go down like a path of you know stealing and and stuff like that what do you think the difference is with like where the line is there with you personally or just in general? Yeah, I mean, I think it's my brain, right? I, yeah. I think my brain was wired this way in multiple different ways. Like, first of all, even when I was a little kid, I'd get addicted to people. Or if I had mac and cheese on Tuesday, I wanted to have it every day of the week until I was sick of it for months on end. <laughs> and and so I've always had, you know, a sort of addictive personality. And also, my brain's always going a million miles a minute, right? And so people always ask me, how do you do all the things you do? I'm in law school and I have a full-time job and I'm a legislator and I, and I do political work and I do all these various things. And it's because my brain never slows down. And so for me, once I was introduced to opioids and they just had this, this slow down effect on my brain and my life, I thought in my head that the drugs were bringing me down to a normal level where everyone else was. So I, I really believe that some people's brains are wired differently. And so some people can use drugs and, and never become addicted, never, never form a habit that is detrimental to their well-being. And, and, and some people can't. And I also think it's substance dependent as well, right? I, I have not been shy about the fact that I do not work a 12-step program. I don't do an entirely abstinence-based program. In my recovery, I don't have a problem with drinking and I don't have a problem with medical cannabis. And and things like that, that a lot of my friends who are in recovery, their brains are wired in a way where they can't do any substances at all. Now, I can't take a, um, you know, a Benadryl or, or, or a cough syrup, but I can drink alcohol. And so I really do believe that everybody's recovery journey is different in the same way that everybody's path towards addiction is different and everybody's reasoning for using drug use is, is different. We try to put people so often into these boxes of one size fits all. And that's just not the reality of what the world is. Did you do Suboxone for a while? I did Suboxone for yeah. a while. It's actually what I got in trouble. What I that I ended up going to jail for was was selling Suboxone. Mm. I was prescribed Suboxone. I I was using it as a crutch on days where I couldn't afford to to get drugs, but overwhelmingly I was using it as an income source. I wasn't using it for its intended purposes. I know yeah. so many people who use Suboxone and Methadone, um, Sublocade or, or Kratom or, or cannabis as medication for opioid use disorder. And that's how, you know, th they have successful lives is 
taking medication that we wouldn't frown upon for someone who was taking medication for any other kind of disease or illness. But yet, for some reason, there's a stigma against people who use medications for opioid use disorder uh, uh, to thrive in life. And so, you know, I tried it and Suboxone didn't work for me. I know people who, who have been on Suboxone successfully for years and years. And so I really, again, think it just goes back to that one size fits all isn't a reality when it comes to recovery. And you were saying a lot of the people you're incarcerated with were there for drug-related offenses. And I'm just wondering, like, philosophically, what do you think we can do as a society? Because we know there was prescription opioid over-prescribing. We've seen a lot of that talked about in popular culture and stuff. Not so much as talked about, well, now people who legit need prescription pain pills are having a hard time getting them because the DEA is messing with doctors now. So as a result, when we talked about this the other day when I saw you, and as a result, illicit fentanyl skyrocketing, iron law prohibition makes the drugs stronger. So what do you think we can do about that? Is there anything that you like a county council could do about that and then of course like the overall drug policy in the united states probably needs to change a little bit right Oh, that is without a doubt. Overall yeah. drug policy in the United States needs to change because what's happening is we're, we're not investing on things that keep people safe. Uh, the entire war on drugs is based on punishing people who really just need help and supports, uh, especially when you see a lot of people who turn to drugs for untreated mental health illnesses for other health problems because of uh, turning to drugs because they don't have stable housing because of stressors such as low wages, uh, lack of access to transportation, right? There are a lot of societal harms that lead people to abusing drugs. And there are a lot of people who use drugs without abusing them. And, and, and our society hasn't reconciled that those two things can simultaneously be true at the same time. I view uh, the war on drugs as failed because that's what it's been. It's torn apart families. It's ripped apart communities. It's cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars on courts and policing and incarceration uh, that could have been spent on supports for people, on investing in people instead of consistently making punishment a priority. And And so many people, including a lot of people who I've loved so, so much, have lost their life to overdose, have lost their life to the war on drugs in some form of another, and we don't ever get them back. We don't get us, they don't get a second chance. We don't get a second chance to help them. And so I really think we just need a total fundamental shift in how we view drugs and people who use drugs and prioritizing, uh, keeping people safe until they are ready to start their recovery, until they figure out what type of recovery works for them. And that's something that we don't see locally and in most places throughout the country. We've seen some folks who have implemented really great harm reduction practices abroad, and they're starting maybe to pop up a little bit here in the United States, but not widespread enough to address the epidemic that is overdose deaths. And so I care about keeping people alive and keeping people safe. And that's what I think we need to make sure that we're focusing on anytime we're talking about people who use drugs. Oregon, they have now decriminalized across the board all drugs, whereas like in Pittsburgh, if you're carrying pot, even if you don't have a card, it's a $100 fine now, and and that's what they've done in the entire state of Oregon with all drugs. Do you think something like that would work 
here in Pennsylvania or The biggest somewhere? problem here in Allegheny County especially is that we have such a fragmented government, right? Mm-hmm. So we have over 100 different police forces all within my district. So the city of Pittsburgh decriminalized cannabis, but all of the other municipalities, 129 other municipalities and over 100 other police forces outside of the city city of Pittsburgh still haven't addressed that at all. The reality is, you know, we already have a safe supply for drugs such as nicotine and caffeine and alcohol. Those things are regulated from the government and people are dying from those things less than they are from unregulated drugs because people don't know what's in the drugs that they're getting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've seen even the example of, of not just fentanyl that's in heroin, uh, but also fentanyl that's in pills that people think they're buying a completely different drug, maybe a Xanax or maybe a pain pill. And it's actually a fake pill pressed with fentanyl. And again, that's, that's another indicator of our failed war on drugs, that instead of prioritizing what keeps people alive, allowing them to know what's in the substances they're taking, our country has decided that some drugs are worthy of of regulation and some drugs are worried are are not what we're seeing is different jurisdictions attempting to regulate the drug supply to keep people safe to keep people from dying it's just another piece of putting people first and doing actual harm reduction not just using harm reduction as a buzzword but actually implementing policies that reduce harm and so in allegheny county i do think it's difficult to do at a county level because Mm. of all the different police forces that you'd need to get on board county council doesn't have the jurisdiction to mandate what different municipalities do in relation to that that's up to you know the individual municipalities or the commonwealth of pennsylvania or the federal government if they ever decide to step in and folks out. I wanted to talk about what's going on in the Allegheny County Jail because I told you a little bit about uh, this guy Marshall Price. He was in a county jail in Arkansas, Green County Jail. He was killed in prison and uh, you know the police are just closed mouth about it and it's really suspicious. Uh, They haven't released the camera footage that should have definitely been in the prison and should have been on the dashboard to the family and so what's going on in the Allegheny County Jail? First of all, how many deaths have occurred there this year? Yeah, we've had 17 deaths since April 2020. We have one of the highest per capita death rates of any county jail in the nation. And, you know, when when I first started going to, we have an Allegheny County Jail Oversight Board. And, you know, years ago before I was elected, when I first started going to jail oversight board meetings, um, I had been following along was with what was going on in the jail because I was in there myself so many times and so many people that I cared about were incarcerated there or had been at some point in our lives. And, you know, the meetings were 30 minutes long and the administration of the jail used it as, you know, a, like a press conference to talk about successes in the jail instead of talking about how the they're helping people, how they're helping to rehabilitate them, how they're helping to keep them safe inside the jail. And so one of the first things that happened when I got sworn in in 2020 was I got put on the jail oversight board, the first formerly incarcerated person to ever be on that board. And so I, I bring to it a unique perspective of my time in the jail. And I go into the jail regularly and conduct surprise visits where I talk to incarcerated individuals, I talk to staff, I investigate the conditions 
kitchens, um, uh, people on mental health pods, the, the food being prepared in the kitchen. Um, it, 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 it's just a, such a gross human rights violation. And the administration of the county, including jail administration, has just pushed back on any real meaningful reform. And the reality is that it, this is a jail we're talking about, right? Not a prison. So a similar situation to the one to the one you referenced, where somebody had only been in there for a short period of time. And so these are people who are in our custody for a short period of time and are dying. These are people's uh, sons and brothers and fathers and friends. And 17 lives are never going to come back. 17 people are never going to have the opportunity to experience uh, recovery and success. And Again, a lot of those people were dying within a few days of coming into the jail. Other people out of that 17 had died for what what appears to be very clear, preventable medical issues that just because they're not getting their needs met, now they're dead. And now there's a grieving family who has to show up month after month to jail oversight board meetings to advocate for answers. I have tried to get video footage of events leading up to the deaths of the various people who have died there recently. And I, as a jail board member, as a, you know, there's a Pennsylvania statute that authorizes jail board members access to all documents in the jail, to, to any record keeping inside the jail, to information about any person that's inside the jail. And yet I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm yelling into a void about it because the, the warden and, and the deputy wardens and the county administration refuse to provide that. And they cite safety and security concerns, which are nonsense. They cite HIPAA, which is the oversight board is exempt from requirements under HIPAA. Uh, they are just stalling. And then by the time we get even a, a report from the medical examiner, which the cause of death is public, but not any additional details into that, another death has happened. And so then we're jumping around and it's like chaos after chaos. And some of the things that could be implemented in the jail to prevent these deaths could be done at the snap of a finger if only the right people had the willpower to actually do it. And we don't have that right now. There's an issue I think that also came up that I remember from hearing from Allegheny County. The person is released to the ambulance and then they're declared dead. Is that kind of how the jail gets out of uh, responsibility? I think that happened with Marshall Price as well. They argue that, but there, yeah. um, the the fe- there's a federal reporting mechanism, um, and a federal legislation called the Federal Deaths in Custody Reporting Act, and it is very clear that if the person who died would have been in the jail but for the medical emergency that led them to the ambulance or led them to the hospital, then they are liable. They are to be reporting them as deaths in custody because the person was in custody. It's not just a matter of did were they declared deceased inside the walls of the jail. If they were in the custody of the jail in the events leading up to their death, that is to be reported. And the Allegheny County Jail had fought us tooth and nail on that. And we worked with some uh, journalism outlets to, to push back on that. And mm. even now, when someone is rushed via ambulance to the hospital, the Jail Oversight Board still isn't getting reports about that, despite it being in direct violation of federal law. The warden has gone so far as to ease it even tried to deflate the numbers of deaths in custody by not counting deaths that happened in the hospital or in transport to the hospital, by not counting uh, uh, folks who were in the jail and um, were from a, or either federal detainees or any other sort of things. They are going out of their way to try to not count 
people who are dying inside the jail, even though incarcerated individuals are one of the only classes of people in the entire country that have a constitutional right to health care. And the jail knows what they're doing is wrong, but they're just refusing to actually treat people as human beings. And that includes starving them, right? They're being fed lesser quality meals than you would feed your pet. That includes ignoring sick call requests. We had a 26-year-old young man who had been complaining of pain in his legs for days, excruciating pain, had reported it over and over again, and the jail guards mocked him and medical ignored him. And and then after a few days, uh, he, he fell dead on the floor of the jail in front of other incarcerated individuals on his pod. And it turned out it was a blood clot that was in his legs that was causing the pain that traveled to his lungs. And he's dead now. And, wow. and his family hasn't gotten answers. And the oversight bodies and elected officials haven't gotten answers. And, and, and what happens is it ends up leading to a lawsuit. You know, multiple lawsuits for millions of dollars have been mm. paid out from the Allegheny County Jail just in the past seven years. And people of the community who didn't cause those deaths are being forced to pay for it. So I'm hoping yeah. that, you know, talking about it over and over again, everywhere I go, raises the awareness of what is going on inside our jail because our jail is not unique. This is happening in jails and prisons all throughout the country that we're locking people up in a cell, throwing away the key and then forgetting about them. And that's never okay. And so I use my platform to talk about it everywhere I go. If somebody asks me to come talk about something else, you better bet I'm going to figure out a way to raise awareness about deaths in the jail and the inhumane treatment inside the jail every opportunity I get. Especially in county jails, the overwhelming majority of people who are in, in the Allegheny County Jail aren't even convicted of a crime. 95% of our population is in there because they can't afford a cash bail, because they violated their probation, missed a meeting with a probation officer, or failed a drug test, and have a detainer. Uh, these are people who are not dangerous to society. A lot of times it's people who are criminalized because of mental health, because of substance use disorder, because of poverty. And instead of addressing those root causes, we're just throwing them in jail and, and wondering why nothing nothing gets better. It's a county jail, so it's taxpayer funded, but it's also kind of for profit in that oh, it exploits absolutely. prison labor. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, there's a couple different aspects of that because a lot of people talk about for profit jails and prisons, and there are private jails and prisons throughout the country, but all jails and prisons are for profit because specifically in Allegheny County, uh, the county makes a 69% commission on phone calls. So every time an incarcerated individual wants to talk to their kids or their loved ones, they're paying an exorbitant cost to be able to do that. And the county is making a ton of money. The county and the provider of the phone calls are making a ton of money. And that's leaving out commissary items, right? Hygiene products that they have to purchase on commissary, food items that they have to purchase because they're not being fed three adequate meals a day. Those all cost money. And those commissary items, hygiene products are marked up 30, 40, 50% compared to what you or I would pay if we went to buy them at the grocery store down the street. And then on top of it all, incarcerated individuals are working. They're working seven days a week, eight hours a day. We have over 200 incarcerated individuals out of our total population of around 1,400 individuals that work full-time jobs. Seven days a week, eight hours a day, like not having Sundays off, not having holidays off. And 
And it's because the county is making money off of their labor. They're preparing the meals for people in the jail. They're serving the food. They're doing the laundry. They're cleaning the pods. They're doing basic maintenance activities throughout the jail. All jobs that if not for the exploitation of slave labor of incarcerated individuals would be good paying county union jobs that pay good wages. And the people who work in the Allegheny County Jail are making zero cents an hour. So the the burden of buying those commissary items, buying those hygiene products, paying for phone calls and other communications with their families, that burden is falling on their loved ones who are at home. And they're having to choose between, am I going to put food on the table at home? Or am I going to you know, put some money on the commissary accounts of my loved one in the jail so that they can not go to bed hungry at night so that they can keep a relationship with their kids? I know people who are in the jail who, who are you know, spending their phone time on reading books to their kids. We're making a profit off that in Allegheny County. So, you know, I, I, I've been working on legislation to, to forbid the county from making profits off of incarcerated individuals. In April of 2020, I instituted a monthly stipend for incarcerated individuals where every single person in the county jail gets $125 every single month to buy those phone calls, to buy those video calls, to buy those hygiene products and commissary items so that their family doesn't have to worry about it because a lot of folks cannot keep up with that cost. It's an added expense of a person who, if not for the inhumane practices of jailing and incarcerating people who are no threat to our community whatsoever would be out in those same communities being productive and working jobs and supporting their families. And we're taking that away from them. Um, So that's one of the reasons I've been working for a while now and we're the closest we've ever been to implementing it, but paying incarcerated workers. And I believe that they deserve the federal minimum wage. They deserve to make a fair wage that the government has said no worker deserves to make less than this. These are unconvicted people and they deserve to be treated as the workers that they are and be able to earn a livelihood and send money home to their families and pay off their fines and fees and restitution and be able to buy their own phone calls and commissary products. So we're working on things. The problem is getting enough votes, right? I'm a legislator and so I count votes to how many I need to pass a piece of legislation and I need support on both the county council and the jail oversight board of like-minded people who, who see the necessity of these reforms and are willing to take a stand and act on them. I don't have a lot of that right now. I have some. We're building it every day. I'm, I'm working to, to convince people on the board why we need to value human beings. And that's something that I never thought I was going to have to do when I ran for office. I thought, you know, providing other elected officials, other board members with logic and rationale and in data and statistics to support these these policy points, that that would be what it took. But instead, it's it's convincing people to do what's right, and and that's been one of the the hardest parts of my job so far. But I'm doing it. Kratom is illegal in six. It's Schedule One in six states, and then there's like little counties and stuff. I was just looking at Livingston Parish in Louisiana, and some of these. People on the parish council, they had just heard of Kratom two weeks ago. The police are going around lobbying to have it illegal so they can arrest people and put them in. And Louisiana is completely for-profit prison system. Some of the people on the council are asking questions, like a couple of them. And then a couple of them just don't seem to care 
how it affects people's lives when they pass these ordinances. Do you see that a lot? It's just like apathy and they're just kind of there to for power. Oh, yes. It is a very similar thing here. I mean, anybody who's watched any of our jail board meetings, which are which are streamed and archived on YouTube, anybody who's them. come up. Yeah, check those out. Anybody who has come. Some of them are fun. No, um, asking the same questions over and over go every, every single month and getting pushed back every single month, it beats you down, but that's what they want. You know, the people in power, they want us to be divided. They want us to get beat down. They want us to get exhausted by this work because they want to stay in power. They want to, uh, you know, keep not working for people. And, And the thing is, we're all public servants. Our job is to do what's best for people, you know, to put any of our own preconceived notions aside and to fight for the people that we were elected to represent every day. And that includes people who are incarcerated. And, and a lot of times that community gets left out of the conversation because for example on our jail board sit judges who put people in that jail and a sheriff who put people in that jail and a county executive who doesn't even show up for the meetings and so when you have a body that is comprised of people who by definition are responsible for a lot of the atrocities that we're talking about in the jails when those are the ones who are making the decisions about reforms and about keeping people safe, it's an inherent conflict. And so I I see that all the time is that we have, you know, myself and a few others who are pushing for accountability, pushing for transparency, pushing for answers. And, uh, you know, the other folks there who, who, who could care less and who are, who, who are trying to make it to dinner reservations or are, are comparing, comparing the shoes that they're wearing while people are testifying about the atrocities at the Allegheny County Jail and losing loved ones and, and being basically tortured at the hands of the county and nothing's being done about it. And so that's the most frustrating part is seeing people just not care and wondering like what it would take for them to care. Because a lot of people don't care about the plight of incarcerated individuals, don't care about the people, the plight of people who use drugs or people in recovery until it affects them personally. And that's unfortunate that they can't see people as human beings without a personal connection. There's a lot of people in the Kratom community, and they're finding themselves having to go to council meetings and on the state level meet with representatives just so they can fight to continue to consume Kratom. What advice do you have as an elected official, as a member of a county council on contacting a member of council or like maybe testifying at a hearing? Oh, my gosh. Public comments are the best way to have your voice heard. So whether it's, you know, a school policy that you want to go and testify in front of your local school board, whether it's a municipal ordinance with your local police that you want to go testify in front of your local borough or township council or board of commissioners, whether it's a city level ordinance that you want to go to your city council or county council or your state legislators or federal legislators, there are public meetings and public comment periods that are required before any business business is done on these various governmental bodies. It is all outlined under law that says that those comments have to be allowed, whether they're written ahead of time, whether they're in person testifying, but not everyone wants to run for office. And I understand that because I definitely didn't when I ran either, but (laughs) there are definitely ways to participate. Even if you can't vote in the people who, uh, even if you're not old enough to vote, you're always old enough to get provide public comment. If you are old enough to vote, voting doesn't fix everything, but a lot of 
these positions are being decided without your voice when you sit out elections. So regardless of who you vote for, when these electeds come into power, they are going to make decisions with or without your input. So the best way you can give your input is to vote in every election twice a year, every year. Um, I know here in Allegheny County, a lot of our local elections are decided in the primary. Um, and that's when a lot of people aren't turning out to vote. Uh, even more than that, a lot of these really important decisions are being made locally where uh, a, a borough council member can get elected with 100 votes. And then they're making decisions for your entire community. And so people aren't paying attention to these local offices because it's so easy to get distracted by the chaos at the federal level, um, the chaos in our state government. But really, these local elected officials impact your lives more than anything at the state or federal level. And, and they're banking on you not paying any attention to that. So whether it's sending an email, whether it's sending a postcard, whether it's submitting a public comment for a public meeting or showing up to testify in person, whether it's writing a, a private letter to an elected official, all of the contact information for local elected officials and national and state elected officials is public information. You can reach out to them at any time. You can call their office, but get involved because they don't know that there are people out there that feel the way you feel until you tell them. They can't talk to every single person. It's hard to hear every perspective. And the best way to do it is to reach out to them. So I implore everybody to do that always, because I know that my opinions have been changed from hearing from constituents. And I know that other elected officials and other board members' opinions have been changed by hearing from the community. And so I just hope people keep that up and more people get involved. We have seen public participation in our jail board meetings grow exponentially over the past three years. And it lets folks know that people are watching. It helps the local media report on these sort of atrocities in jails and prisons. It helps, it helps garner awareness about what's going on because there are truly still a lot of people out there that just don't know yet. You said you had heard of Kratom before. Yeah, so I, I've had experience with a lot of people who used it as because one, it, it, it was something that was treating the other underlying mental health or, or, or medical issue that they were yeah. using um, other drugs to deal with in the past. So a lot of people in recovery use Kratom as as their own medication for, for substance use disorder. Um, a, a lot of people did it for calming effects, for pain relief. And so I've seen it used very successfully throughout communities that I've been in, especially the recovery community, because we know that what happens even after people are released from jail or prison is often they have a really long period of state supervision after being released from incarceration. They're on probation, they're on parole, they're on house arrest and, you know, subject to regular drug testing. And so they're not using any other substances. And so Kratom has been a helpful solution for those folks. You're in law school now. Are, are you planning on being a lawyer in the future? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't put myself through hundreds of pages of reading every night <laughs> in law school to not be a lawyer. Uh, I know? thought you were just doing it for, you know, to be a better it, council person and make uh, how, how the big busks they're paying really you. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Yeah, I can't wait to be a lawyer. It's something I always wanted to do since I was a kid. I'm halfway through my law school career right now. I'm in an evening program. And so it's a four-year program instead of three because I do work a full-time job in addition to being on county council. And so I go to class uh, on the weeknights and I'm learning not just how to be a more effective legislator, but but how to understand how I can use legal arguments to, to back up various other things that I've been advocating for to help me navigate the criminal legal system to help people who are incarcerated, who have loved ones who are 
uh, incarcerated, going through the legal system, connecting them with legal representation. Now I'd love to cut out that middleman and be that representation for them myself. Um, I really hope to be a public defender someday. I had a lot of really great public defenders throughout my run-ins with uh, the legal system that helped me a lot. I, I respect them so much. And so that's that's where I hope to be someday. 2025, that uh, seems like so far away, but a lot less far than it sounded when I first started law school. What do you think in general about how drugs should be regulated? Because obviously we probably shouldn't sell fentanyl, you know, next to the gum in the grocery store. Kratom right now, they're trying to get past a Kratom Consumer Protection Act because there's a lot of issues with lead in Kratom. It's, it's not being tested. It's an illegal gray area. It's up to the companies to test it to make sure it's free of bacterial contaminations and lead. You know, luckily I know people who do those lab tests and I encourage everybody you got to ask the vendor but they shouldn't have to ask so we're trying to get that regulated do you have any opinions about that kind of thing like uh, the regulation like what a legal drug system would look like I think if that ever were to happen, the most important part is that it is regulated like any other food or drug. Um, again, we already regulate other products that people are consuming. The reason that people are dying isn't just from using drugs. It's because they don't know what's in it. The reason people are getting sick is because they don't know what's in the substances that they're ingesting. So I think whenever you have those um, benchmarks that are issued from the, the Food and Drug Administration, you're, you're treating it like anything else, that's really what, what is going to keep people alive. And so I think that any policy that's put forward for that needs to include, you know, what's in the substance that you're buying and, and put a label on it and, and have it regulated just like any other food product or mm -hmm. alcoholic beverage that you purchase today. The FDA has been kind of an opponent of Kratom. They were the ones that worked with the DEA to try to get it legal. Luckily, there's people in NIH and NIDA who see it as a harm reduction thing, which it mostly is. It can also be abused. And, and remember, we went through periods yeah. like that with prohibition with alcohol, you know? It is it is just part of, I think, the cycle of the history of our country. And so I do believe we'll get there eventually. It's just we are in the prohibition stage right now. That's where we that's where we sit. That's what our laws are around. They were built around the war on drugs. And it's a failed war on drugs. And I think they're starting to realize that they need to take a different approach. I mean, what do they say? What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what's been happening with the war, war on drugs. They're expecting, you know, drug use to stop and overdoses to stop. And yet they're doing the same approaches towards it. So I do believe that there is movement on it. I just cannot even give a realistic timeline for when I think that I believe that we'll see the, you know, state and federal governments take action on it. Thank you so much for doing this. Last question. Uh, what do I got to do to get a 31 bus that's later than 930? <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're all trying to figure out, right? That's another problem with the fragmentation and it's a state and joint county authority. And so it's really about allocating funding to transportation, right? Like free uh -huh. transportation is a great thing and we should remove the cost barrier to any public transportation. But we really have to 
start talking more about expanding access to public transportation, having buses that go later than nine o'clock at night, having buses that are available on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, making it a, a form of transportation that people can rely on, not having to plan their whole day around their transportation, but instead having transportation that allows them to have a full day without having to worry about how they're going to get where they're going. So uh, we're working on it every day. The Fair Fares campaign um, was successful for, you know, removing cost burdens to accessing public transportation. But now yeah. we need to focus on if the bus says it's coming at seven o'clock, it better come at seven o'clock so I can <laughs> count on it to get get to work. And if a bus runs through my community, it should run through my community at a time that even if I'm working the evening shift, even if I have a late class, even if I forget to get something at the grocery store at night when I'm making a late dinner, that I can hop on a bus and be able to get that. So we're working on it. Thank you so much, Allegheny County Council Person Bethany Hallam. We are Kratom Science, headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Give us a call, 412-353-9770. We're on Twitter and Facebook. On TikTok, we're K-R-A-D-M Science. The music is by Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me. Brian Gallagher for KratomScience.com. Take care.